Welcome to Triumph and Disaster, a show dedicated to manly creativity and culture. Brought to you by your host, Cameron McCarg. Hey guys, how's it going? It's Cameron McCarg, and uh, this week I am really excited about this episode. We have Tom Coker on, who is an incredibly talented comic book artist who has worked for DC, for Marvel, for Dark Horse Comics. He's done it all. He's uh, he's you know done Batman, Iron Man, whatever, X Men, everything. Just a really prolific and extremely talented and humble artist. And um, and we go a little longer than normal. We go for about an hour and a half in this episode. I don't have any really cut and dry rules for what we're going to be doing on the, the TND podcast. I'd like to keep it at about an hour or so, maybe even a little less, but right around there. So it's you know basically good for a good solid commute. But um, we just had a really good talk. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I, we had a great talk. It was... Um, really candid and really inspirational. He has um, been drawing since he was a teenager, not just drawing. He's been drawing since he was a kid. He's been making a living as a, as an artist since a teenager. I think he said he started when he was making a living when he was 17, if I remember right. And, um, you know, if you refer to that 10,000 hour rule where you don't master something until you've done, you know, something for 10,000 hours, he, uh, I forget the number, he, he mentions it in the, uh, in the talk, but he actually went back and tried to do the math on that for himself, and he estimates, I think he said, he's probably put in about 75,000 hours drawing. And it's really inspirational. He he doesn't believe in talent. He does not believe in talent. He gets up every day and works and draws at about 7.30, 7, no later than 8.30 every day, and stops around 6, 6.30 at night every day, and has basically done that routine for his entire adult life. So just finding out what it takes to become great and what it takes to master something, to master an art, not just kind of dicking around with it here and there on weekends or whatever. And that's fine. And that's great if anybody wants to do that, but to really, really master something, you know, he talks about that and, uh, and it's, it's a funny talk. It's a fun conversation. Why don't we go ahead and get right to it? Here's Tom Coger, Triumph and Disaster. All right. I have Tom with me. We were just uh, talking about, we're out on my front porch right now and you can see downtown LA from here and there's a building what's it called the Wilshire building or something know, so something like that it's like the the trade tower height almost right yeah, it's like huge that. yeah so we can see it in the distance and I guess some guy fell off at like the 55th or third floor or whatever it was and landed on the back of some girl's car so that's how we start this talk <laughs> so um Tom is a dude that has a lot on me. Like he can, you're one guy that can blackmail the shit out of me because he uh, has many photos. I don't know if you deleted them of me, basically like uh, in, in uh, yeah, basically like in tidy whities in the cape, holding like wiffle ball bats, which will become like Thor swords and shit like that. You actually, can you explain why <laughs> why I do that? <laughs> Most often, I'm asked to draw in run drawn comics uh, to draw like photorealistic stuff, and so uh, I, because Cameron is, uh, you can't see me gesture. Muscular individual that I was using him to model for a bunch of like uh, superhero kind of shit, and so I just a bunch of absolutely ridiculous pictures of him. Yeah, in contorted pres- positions. Yeah, doing, like, Trying to be a superhero. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know if I have. I think I've 
Did you you have you've kept some of those? <laughs> Why? Yeah, like the last two years worth of pictures. Just just in case, just in case you need a little extra dough. Yeah. I can use that pose again of <laughs> whatever that was. That makes sense. I'll post. I have that uh, the blog up too, so I'll post. Uh, I was so I'm the I'm the the vision, Marvel the Marvel the vision. So I'll post it up on the blog. You guys will see it. And you, dude, I never told you this. By the way, I, this this happened once. I can't believe it happened, but I actually got recognized from that one time at the comedy store last year. This dude actually recognized, and he flipped the fuck out. Like he he thought it was the coolest thing ever. It's a true story. I've, it happened once. I don't think it would ever happen again. But some guy had a good eye, and actually, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It was some uh, big comic book fan, like Comic Con guy. Actually, so. Yeah, speaking of that, I've never been to Comic-Con. And uh, I know Daniel Daniel was your former partner, writing partner at one point. And uh, we can talk about that too later if you want. But um, Daniel Friedman. Um, what, what's, that's just some pretty crazy scene, isn't it? Do you have a, you have, you have a pretty substantial amount of fans, don't you? Not to toot your own horn, but you, you have a following in that, in that. I think I do. I mean, it's, it's weird because I don't, Go to shows. Uh, I don't go to conventions very often. I don't. I don't. Um, I do a lot of autographs and, and sign books and shit. Um, and sometimes I'll go like when I usually will go when I have something to promote. But in the last like four or five years, I've been mainly writing or doing like design stuff that you can't show, and it's all NDA stuff, so you can't show anybody. And so I don't go any. I haven't gone any shows. And then this year I was going to go to. Uh, WonderCon in San Diego, the one in Anaheim and the one in uh, San Diego, I guess. And um, uh, the two conventions, and I, I found that I can't go because I didn't, somehow I'm no longer registered as a professional, even though I went to San Diego Comic Con 18 times in a row. Jesus Christ, so it's getting like that. Like I saw, like a. Uh, I went to, you know, for. 18 or 20 years in a row and, but now because I haven't gone in three years I think then I get bumped off the, the list wow that's like uh, wasn't that the Grammys Paul McCartney got <laughs> bounced by some guy <laughs> it was him and Beck I think <laughs> together yeah, they weren't on a list <laughs> now you're not on this bro Exactly. That's funny. But what's it? It, it is pretty crazy, though, right? There's a lot of weird shit going on down there. There you go. That says it all. I didn't even know it was. When did it start? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I didn't know it was. I wasn't even aware of it until not that minute. Was the first year it was in the uh, 
at the, the new convention center, which is not new anymore, it's 30 mm. years old now. Um, or maybe 30 years old now. But, um, so, I think, I think it was at the Cortez Hotel or something across the way there. Prior to that, but, uh, so I don't know how long it's been going on, but it's been at least going on for since 89. Wow, and it's changed a lot. Now it's like a huge Hollywood show, basically, right? Yeah, now it's all Hollywood stuff, and, you know, the, the artists, the comic guys like me, they, they kind of get a little bit of, um, you're kind of there at the grace of, of the, the powers that be. They don't, I don't think they really do it, honestly. Uh, and not, I mean, it's, a, it's still called Comic-Con, but at the same time, it's like the comic shit, the, 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 the people... Like me, that are creating comics, we're not paying the bills. It's the, it's the people making the movies. Yeah. The studios that they're paying the bills. So I, I get it, but it sucks. But um, when I was a kid, there was huge amounts of money just floating around the comics that were selling so much. And see, a good amount of some, you know, you'd be 17 or 18 or, I mean, up until I was like around 24, 25. And you'd have these kids like myself or other people who do an issue Wolverine, you'd get a uh, you know, a royal check for a lot of money at that time, and uh, and um, and then suddenly you look at all these kids loose in, in San Diego with lots of pot and, and mm-hmm. speed and alcohol and uh, you want to really close by. <laughs> and, and it would just go. It would become Marquis de Sade, really. <laughs> it was like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. <laughs> I never thought of comic book dudes being like doing the rock star lifestyle down there like that. But it's but that's kind of what happens. <laughs> So time to make up for lost time. Oh my god. 
So it was like the hangover. Oh, man. So did it look like a Jackson Pollock with a black light in there? There's a grand piano, there's a jacuzzi, it's two stories. Big mistake to turn that over to you guys. It's, you know, huge king-sized beds, you know, overlooking the entire downtown. It was amazing. And we're just a bunch of dumb kids that are looking to, you know, have fun and maybe get lucky and whatever. And, and uh, I don't know, a big visual memory of that is... I don't know if it was David Williams or someone was upstairs in the in the jacuzzi. And the party that went like just packed with people that are drunk and sloppy and <laughs> and people that are like really repressed, you know, people that only get out of the house like once a year and they're at their there's this is their thing, you know, so this is the show in San Diego. And I remember sitting there and I'm just hammered. And I'm sitting on the floor in the living room looking laying down and I'm looking at the chandelier in the entryway which is Beneath the jacuzzi, which is upstairs, and I started to realize that the chandelier was filling with water. What? And that something, I don't know if they were overflowing it upstairs and it was going down through the floor, or if they somehow ruptured something and it was going down through the floor. But I do remember just sitting there thinking, like, and then just wandering off and going to find fine girls. <laughs> <laughs> That's the attention span of like a 20-year-old dude. Yeah, it doesn't matter much. <laughs> but, um, I don't think it got thrown out there, but I think the party got shut down quickly after that. Um, you got started early doing this stuff, didn't you? You just said what you were you were drawing when you were a teenager? I was, um, I, I was 17 and I got my first job, I think. I just turned 17. I had my son when I was 16, and I really young, I broke up like a new man, and I had a kid, and Andrew, and he's 27, next month, much more. And so I didn't really have, uh, I was not good at anything, but mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I was not supposed to be good at anything. And, but when she got pregnant, I was 15, and so I decided, well, the only thing I can do is draw pictures. And at that time, I just drew, like, you know, Eddie Maiden and, like... Oh, Eddie, the Iron Maiden Eddie? Yeah, and, like, that yeah. little album cover. On, on your peachy in school yeah, kind of thing? Yeah, actually, I drew it for all the yearbooks and all the... I would draw Eddie, like, in line at the cafeteria and... <laughs> like the school newspaper or something yeah, kind of thing? <laughs> And uh, lots of just like monsters and stuff like that, and, and half naked ladies. Of course. Um, and so I decided, well, I don't have anything to do with draw, and I like comics. I kind of was reading comics at that point, but I did like comics. I love comics, and I was reading like, they're a fairly open collection of stuff. Um, a lot of creepy magazines and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So I sort of come in, and I call the black and white stuff. And, um,. So I sat down for a couple of years and just said, I'm going to learn how to draw. And I just happened to be lucky enough to, to I think, have 69 of my first WonderCon and then San Diego. And I think I was working by, by myself. I think by the time I was 17, I was working. Um, I just happened to be lucky enough that there was a, an enormous flood of work that, like, the boom in the industry happened right at the same time that I was trying to, to get work. And so you didn't really have to be that good. You just had to be able to. Uh, in the 
obviously, you know, the guys that were popular at the time that were making, you know, these huge amounts of money for posts selling huge numbers. And you, um, so when when your girlfriend got pregnant, that's you actually decided, okay, I'm going to really go for this. Like before, you were just kind of playing. Well, I, I wanted, I would tell people that I wanted to draw pictures for a living, but I didn't really know what the, what the fuck that meant. Like I just knew that I was going to draw. I was going to. Uh, I mean, in my teenage brain, I thought, okay, I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do for a living, but I didn't know how I was going to do that. And, I mean, when she got pregnant, was when comics became like. I mean, it's kind of easy. Like, I wanted to do movies and stuff like that as well. But then, with comics, like, if you look at the inside, you know, front page, and at the bottom, they had an address and it had a name. And it right. Had, this is before the uh, internet, so you had to actually, like, yeah, mail something. Was there a lot of that? Was there a lot of go to hells? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were some people who were really nice about it. And, um, well, I mean, just rejection in general. I mean, hundreds and hundreds. I would just sit there all week and I would draw. You know, a few pages or a handful of stuff in a couple of weeks or whatever, and then once you get seven or eight pages that you thought were um, were worth showing people, then you would just send them off and, and hope for the best. So like every two or three weeks, they're sending out like four years of you know mail envelopes with a return envelope inside of it. Return it oh, S A S A S E self-addressed action, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Does anybody even know what that is anymore? And so you would, uh, well, you'd get an enormous amount of rejection. I mean, a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times you didn't get rejection because they just wouldn't respond. Just nothing. And some people would respond really venomously, like they'd just be really unnecessarily mean. Wow. And then, um, I don't want to name any names on that. Yeah. You have sense, and they probably had no idea that. Oh, did you? I think that's great. Yeah. That's so great. Just real quick, that just uh, in this past uh, um, episode with uh, Jared Savier, he's a he's a producer now, successful, and and he had a friend who was got some tv series i won't say what it was but it was a long time long long time good friend and he got this thing and then he just kind of became a douche and didn't answer his tag you know he just blew him off and so that stuff dried up for this guy and then years later jared became a producer and this guy submitted for some movie that he did and they actually called him in well no because because the actor guy blew him off so but jared actually intentionally called him in to this casting session, sat there and was like, "Hey, how you doing, man?" Yeah. And yeah, obviously didn't hire him, but I, I think that that's some sweet poetic justice there. Vindictive, but it's still. Like a numb flashback. <laughs> There's like helicopters and stuff. And <laughs> one particular guy that I, that I, it was a work thing that went, as it's the worst work experience I've ever had. I won't even, I'm not even going to get into it. But, um, but the dream though is I'll run into this guy and it's usually at some sort of like a convention setting or something. And which I think is the only place I've probably ever actually run into him. Uh, and, 
I run into them again, and I, and I just can't use cars to be friendly, and I, I just can't take it, I get a screaming match with them. And, uh, and then he challenges me to fight, because <laughs> since the last time he knew me, He's been, he's basically just like, I've been waiting for this moment. Like a, oh my God, is he like a Southern gentleman and he slaps you with a no, leather glove? No, he's, like, he's like a, uh, You've offended me, sir. Like a Chinese, uh, you know, Shaolin master or something. Like he's, he's oh, sir. oh, really? He started back then and he's, <laughs> so he has pictures of you around his bedroom and he like bench presses crying with opera in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. It's unbelievable. I'm going to vanquish you. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And then we get in a fight and I just beat the fuck out of him. He can't win. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Monkey or something. Well, there's there's a matter of being busy, and then. Right. To do anything. Right. I got a, you know, kid and a, and a wife and mainly I have people who, I've had a few people who've got pissed at me because, um, I suddenly wasn't like hanging out every, oh, like even more than you did before or whatever. And I'm just like, dude, like I got a fucking kid. Like I get up at six and it's five thirty in the morning. Right. I gotta get her ready. I gotta get my wife's stuff ready. I gotta get myself ready. I gotta get them to her school. My wife's off to work. I'm Working as much as I can, I gotta go to PTA or soccer practice. Yeah. You came here from a soccer game, didn't you? Yeah, I just came from a soccer game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the reality. At the end of the day, you just don't get a chance to really uh, hang out. By the way, I'm I'm really good friends with Daniel, but and I want to talk about what you guys have done and some of the other stuff and catacombs and that sort of thing. But real quick, going back for a second, when you say, because um, I don't know, I don't obviously I don't know the business, but you, when I, I thought comics were at a, a peak right now, no? Thank you. I thought that you you were saying that there was a boom back in the day and there's all this money going around and, and so it's a different story now? Well, this is the thing. Comics are probably making, and I think I saw a thing saying that comics are making more money today than they were during the boom, but I'm, I'm going to light this first. Yeah, please, go ahead. To steady my hands while I talk about mm-hmm. this. But, um, 
He is shaking like a whore in church right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I actually I, I, I stopped you with that one yeah that's a good one I think more money now but I read but it's because of the phone stuff and, it, and the people on my end of it which are the guys who are creating the, the comics um, we don't see any of that I mean unless it's unless we get some kind of like reflection of that in sales because we happen to be on the Avengers when Avengers book comes out or an Avengers movie comes out mm-hmm. but um but when I was a kid, and it's easy to put in really clear, uh, it's, it's easy to be very clear. So I, I did a few books for DC Comics, or lousy books, I think they got published. Um, and I did a book for, uh, for Image Comics, which is, I don't want to give a history lesson on Image Comics, but if you don't know what they are, the Image Comics is now a huge publisher for independent books. But originally, they were seven guys who were the biggest seven guys at Marvel Comics, as far as artists are concerned, that decided to go start their own company because they were their books were selling such huge numbers at Marvel, like they were doing X Men and Spider Man and all mm-hmm. the you know, big titles. Um, their books were doing such huge numbers, they felt that they could uh, do their own books and started their own company and be able to keep all of the profit for themselves. And, uh, and that's what they did, and that's what they did. Like, they started this company, and they were selling. I remember hearing a story, and this is a story, like, I've never asked Jim if it's true or not, but I remember hearing a story about Jim Lee, who drew X-Men, and he's doing Batman's right now. I think he was mm-hmm. part of DC. And these other guys who went off and founded uh, Image, and it's a lot and homage, and whatever. And, and um, I remember hearing a story that he got a call a few months after he'd left Marvel because you get a royalty check every four or five months or six months whatever. oh is it that infrequent um, well I guess if you're only doing a book a month you're probably getting a more relative mm-hmm. but I think I get all my stuff jacked up in like I think I get three a year like I think they're or no four a year I think they're quarterly must be a nice surprise to get that then out of the blue yeah, I mean, you're really but he was getting you know I think the check that they called him and said, we had this check and we lost it. It had fallen behind a filing cabinet. We were moving offices and they found this check. That's yours and it's a royalty check and we just never sent it out to him and we'll, you know, give it to your ad director and we'll send it to And it was a check for something like, in the story I heard it was something like two or $300,000. Jesus. And he was like, oh yeah, just prop it in the mail, but you know, it'll come at the same address and everything like that. And in my mind I was like, well, Craig, what's the fucking check for two or $300,000? Like, I would have been on the phone a lot. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Please, please look behind the cabinet. Um, I know when they were doing like their first books, they were doing you know two to three million print runs. Um, and it's not like that anymore, so much. Oh my God! And so when I did my first book for Image, we sold. Really excited! A huge page. I was getting I was seventeen, maybe eighteen at that point. I was doing, you know, these. I didn't know how to draw. It was awful. And but I'm doing these pages. I'm getting like six hundred bucks a page or something like that. It's huge. I mean, you. I was doing a page every two days, and so nice. 
for an 18-year-old kid with no real expenses, that's pretty great. Um, and then uh, the book came out, and um, I got a call from her, you know, the FOC, the orders were all done. And I got a call from the publisher, uh, who's a friend, and, and he was like, dude, I'm sorry, man, the book just didn't sell, it didn't perform, you know, so we're going to do it, we're going to ship you out. And uh, I was like, oh, no, like, what were the numbers? Like, I, you know, feeling like I just failed everybody in the world. And he's like, it only sold 350,000 copies. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, what, how could I show my face? Wow. And he's like, I'll send you a check, you know, for your royalty on that. Because for them, they get the stuff immediately, and if it's a small thing, they just send you out a check. Cause they knew to me, that seems like a lot, a lot of copies, a lot of big, a big run, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, and they sent me a check for nearly 20 grand, and I was just like, Wow. I remember being in my studio holding this fucking check for, it was like $22,000 or something, and and almost being like teary-eyed, thinking like, I'm a total... I'm done. I've just blown it. Like, I completely failed. And my dad was there at the time. And he's like, dude, you've got a check in your hand for $20,000 for six weeks worth of work. Like, uh, beyond the what you were paid to do the actual book. Yeah. The 600 bucks paper, and it's like... Like, there's no way in fucking hell you should feel like a, like a, like you just killed it. Like, you've done really, really, really good. So, fast forward to today, so what, today would that, what would that be in a, a similar thing? Like, well, I, we, or I, would there even be a similar thing? Daniel and I for image three or four years ago now. And um, with our first issue, image was really happy. They were like, you guys did great. This is wonderful. Um, it's a good quality book, and, and, it, and the first issue's numbers are really good, and we got a reorder, and this and that, and so you guys should feel great. And that book sold, I, I want to say it sold 11,000 copies. Wow. What what happened? Like, what? It's just, for whatever reason, the popularity of comics? Oh, just everything. Okay. Okay. I mean, at that time, when I was young, it was, a, it was an issue where... Um, the card market, the, like the baseball cards and stuff like that, it collapsed because um, oversaturation is like, you know, people buying thousands of copies of every card thinking that at some point in the future they're going to be worth, they're going to retire when they sell their baseball card collection. And not understanding that if you only, or that if, if you have five million people in it, in, it, in it collecting something and every one of those five million people, or if Three million out of those five million people take all of those baseball cards and they put them in in the garage or something, yeah. locked up and perfectly stored, so they'll never bend or warp or whatever. That no matter when you eventually decide to sell that stuff, it's going to be worthless because there's three million perfect copies of it on, out there. Right, right. There's nothing the reason, too special about the reason it. Reason Ty Cobb cards sell for a million bucks or half a million bucks a piece is because there's only seven of them in existence. Right, right. Most of them are really fucked up. But, um, and that's what happened. So when that collapsed, all those people came over to comics and they were thinking that their comics, you know, so at that time I think of Superman number one had sold for a million bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's thinking that they're going to collect comics and eventually be able to retire and put their kids through school and move to the south of France or whatever. <laughs> and the same thing happened. Like, you have these people that are buying <coughs> 20 or 30 copies of each book and they're putting them in plastic bags and boards and they're storing them in these perfect conditions so they'll never go be damaged and, and, and the next thing you know like the books are totally there's an immediate bounce because like a book comes out and everybody goes and rushes and buys it and so if you go on the second day to buy it 
it sold out and you can't get it. And so they, there was like an immediate resale market where like within a few weeks of the book coming out or even a few months, you could sell something at a really inflated price where you bought it for $2 and you can now sell it for 20 But a few years into that, you know, four or five years into that, everybody realized that this shit's worthless. It's, it's not even, I mean, it's literally not worth the, the, the amount of money you paid for it. Wow. And so, um, it's a market class. And so you don't have, uh, I, I've been lucky enough to keep, to continue working through that and, uh, and still work on, on pretty good titles and, and, and have, have a pretty okay career. But I, but I also do a lot of like toy design stuff and, and video games and, and, and You've had to learn to, work, you know? and yeah. And I was trying to do that stuff all along, and, and I did board storyboard for a long time and stuff like that. And so, uh, so I've never been a full time uh, comic book guy because it's just it doesn't. It, it's everything spread out. Yeah, it's just I mean, being a full time comic book guy, it's just it's, it's really hard. And like, I don't. I, I'm not a guy who draws super fast or draws. I'm not a guy who's going to have like all the little kids lined up to buy my drawings because they're going to be scary and, <laughs> and violent. Right. And so, um, but a lot of that just got balanced. I mean, it's got driven out of the out of the industry because there was when I got my first job, it was like you know if you could hold a pencil and imitate Jim Lee or Rob Liefeld or these different guys that were making um, selling all these books, then you could get a job. But then as soon as those the market collapsed, all those jobs disappeared or contracted. Um, you didn't, you couldn't get a job going like Jim Lee or Rob Lightfoot because it was A, it was pass A, and B, uh, there was already those guys doing that work. So right. why did they need you to imitate it if they could just hire those guys? Right. Um, and, uh, but you've you've worked for, like, you've done all, with all the big ones, DC, Marvel, and, and you've done... All of them. What what? What famous characters have you have you done? Basically, everything um, you can think of. DC, I never did really famous characters because I didn't think of Batman once or twice. Well, oh, that's ones. huge. But I never did Batman. I think I did a book called Monolith, and, and Batman guest starred in it. But for the most part, at DC, I was doing stuff that was like creator around sort of stuff that. Didn't interact with the. It was like a new title that was okay. not part of the DC universe. Whatever. These are nerdy terms. Well, is it gone? It is now. Ah! <laughs> Sorry, guys. I have to admit to you. All right, and this is the second try. By the way, <laughs> so my recorder crapped out in the middle of our talk. We were trying to come up with something clever. Got nothing. Anyway, we're going to try to take over where we left off. We were talking about who we're drawn from Marvel and all these famous characters, and then we were talking about the, um, you're basically, not your mentor, but the guys that you looked up to, the artists that you looked up to the most, and uh, and how you trying to emulate them. You can never really do that, and you were talking about like some like no, some bands really and things. I talk about like how, when, when I worked on the Avengers stuff, the, the person that I, the last time I read an Avengers book was probably 25 years ago, it was like John Buscema, like these people who created the, the look of how comics work today and, and these guys that were really considered, you know, visionary geniuses that were, uh, that are still, like, beyond um, compare as far as the work they produced. 
And uh, and when I was on the adventures, I would draw these pictures, and I would just think like it became a huge hindrance to me because I couldn't. Uh, I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't just say, okay, that's good enough, or that's a, that's a well-drawn picture, or whatever, because it was it wasn't the way I saw the Avengers in my mind. Because as a kid, that's I remembered these other guys, you know, doing these iconic poses and these iconic characters and these iconic. Uh, scenes and situations and the costumes and all this kind you of You felt like it didn't measure up? Yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't... Oh, I was just saying, put your mic up closer to you. Just, oh. You don't have a bugger on your shirt or it something. It the same, I thought I meant to say. It just didn't have the same whatever. And, and people, I, I don't know, I mean, I, I feel like I'm extra um, sensitive to that to be like, uh, I, I really, really, really like did you try to actually draw the the same things that they drew like you know like because that's like the old school the old school like and i'm sure they still do it i'm not an expert on this but like with painters when they would study the masters and they would paint the yeah exactly did you do the same process as a kid and other things like there's a anymore that's not a huge problem. I mean, I don't I don't ape anybody or anything like that. I mean, there's people I look at and I or there's people I seek out for for uh, inspiration. But um, but I don't imitate or ape or, or rip anybody off of anything. Um, but there are still people like that I can't look at, like people that are. Close enough to what I do, or with big enough influences on me when I was a kid, that um, I, I actually can't look at their work today while I'm working because it will just oh, it fucks you up a little bit. Me. Like, wow. Like, oh no, I'm gonna suddenly, you know, start drawing hands like Duncan Fabrato or that's fascinating. Mike Magnola setups or, or whatever, you know, and it's it's so I just don't. There's like a handful of guys I just literally don't look at because I still buy their books. I just keep them in a box. And that's interesting I you know when I used to act a lot more I had this I had a very similar idea where like if it was like some bad sitcom mom or something I'd be like oh yeah I feel like it was gonna rub off on me or something I felt like uh, I didn't want to watch it you know what I mean like it felt like it would fuck me up somehow I'm and I was just you know this I don't you know I just I was just thinking like how uh, and I'm not a big I mean I liked comics like ever all, all kids did you know I'm not a big con guy, but there were a few guys, there were a few things that had an impact on me as a kid. I just thought, it just kind of blew my mind. And one, and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember his name. I think it's Frank something. He's the guy that did all the, not Frank Miller, the guy, or maybe it's not Frank, but it's an Italian name. He did uh, all those uh, fantasy, like Conan kind of art. You know, you'd see like a guy with a battle axe and like a top. Frazetta. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing like as a yeah okay, yeah. So I remember seeing his stuff like a, it might be some guy's house or something. You know, an older kid or something might have a poster or something on the wall, and, and just thinking like, wow, you know what it was? Is it's like this is I guess as a kid I would say it's a cartoon because I didn't know what else to call it, but it was like adult man. It was sexual and violent and like yeah, and it was incredible. Yeah. 
And then along a similar note, um, I was I saw a movie called an animated movie called Wizards when I was a kid by Ralph Bakshi. So, Oh really? It was it blew my mind as a kid. I probably shouldn't have seen it as a kid actually. Just the and it was, you know, violent and and like everything and Fire and Ice, I remember that too. Okay, right. And then um on a little more of a tame note, but there was a there was a um kind of like a anime series when I was a kid and it was a serial and it was called Star Blazers. Do you know Star Blazers? Yamamoto, the Yamamoto, yeah. Dun, 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 dun. I actually got a few of the DVD. I had to for nostalgia's sake, but it was this thing where you, you know, and it was only playing in a few markets. I found out later, a handful of years ago, it was this like uh, like in Seattle and Boston and like Dallas and a couple other markets. Like it wasn't all over the country. Okay, so it was it was a handful of places, but they would. It was literally like an old school cereal. I like could get up in the morning before school, eat a bowl of cereal, and it'd be like. You know, they were on a mission to save the earth and be like, there's only 283 days left and before the earth dies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And but there but people actually died in it in a cartoon. And I'd never seen that in a cartoon before. And I just thought and I would spend, all, you know, all day in school drawing these things. And, you know, and I would even have dreams about it. I was I was so into I mean, just the idea. It felt like that they respected kids in a way. You know, it's not like, um, you know what I mean? Right, right. Oh, really? Oh, so before... Uh, oh, they had Space Marines and Star Blazers, too. I always wondered if James Cameron got that from that. Right. It can happen. Wiley Coyote or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Rosetta to me is kind of like Bernie Wrightson is to me, where he was a generation before those were the guys that influenced the guys that influenced me. Okay. Yeah, sure. So I would say, for example, in like movie terms, like the French New Wave influenced guys like Scorsese and all these guys in the 70s, Coppola and those guys, and and then they influenced guys like Tarantino or whatever. All right. Right. 
big butts and like right. full, you know, body, amazing, like barbarian women or whatever. And I told them it was just like kind of out of shape. Right. And you can never, like you were saying when we got cut off earlier, we were talking about how you can't. certain names that are just bigger than, than the industry, bigger than the KFK, or bigger than, um, than anybody around today is ever going to be. Like they've taken on their own life almost. Yeah, they've, they've become something that you just can't compare yourself to, and if you do, you're an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Whether you are better than the Beatles, or that has really no bearing at all, it doesn't mean anything, it just means like there's a certain... Um, there's a lot of painters that I look at that are painters that are considered some of the best I've ever lived. And I think I look at some of the paintings and I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's, a, that's a good weekend's worth of work. Wow. But, uh, but because they did it the way they did it, they need something, and, and I, if I were to do it, it wouldn't. You know, so that's just. Uh, um, I meet people who are influenced by what I did and, and or what I do and. And there are these kids that are like in their twenties or whatever. What is that like, by the way? I mean, for you to is it? Well, it's just weird because you're just like I, I always tell every one of them, like, dude, don't look at what I do. Like, what I do is just derivative of what these guys did. Go look at these guys. Like, they did it. When I talk to people who are in, that are really good, and and I don't, I'm not trying to include myself in that group, but like. I tell people that are really amazing at what they do, as far as the you know, drawing stuff, the comics and whatever, and, and it seems like everybody who's developed their own style, you do over time, think about how they do and shit. Um, initially, that style comes about because you're trying to figure out how to work around the things that you can't figure out, mm. or that are beyond your ability. Uh, that people you're looking at as influences are doing. So I always tell people, like, my style is just a collection of all the things, all the shortcomings I had when I was trying to figure out how to draw like these other guys. And eventually all those little shortcomings added up to me doing what I do and, and creating my own way of doing things. Um, 
I do really want to know how to do this stuff. Well, look at the guys I was looking at. Don't make a bunch of it. It's, it's, it's just a mess. Oh, come it's on. Mess, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's not those other guys. Those it's, guys are just the top of the box. Like, right, right, right. And always will be. Yeah, they'll always be more they will always be more important than what I'm doing. And you they were better at it. Or they were just they were they were more important to the industry. And you know so and did by the way, this is not too off subject. I'm gonna bring this back a little bit, but you knew, you went you know some uh some successful musicians as well. Didn't you grow up with some guys from like the Deftones or something like that? Or do you know from Tool or something like that? Didn't you know some of those guys? Which was, I was too, that was huge in the 80s. Yeah, we all were. Yeah. A <laughs> super goose. <laughs> like, oh, like that's stuff, and he was like, "Hey, that's Tom." And so we chatted for I don't know half hour, and and uh, I, mean, I would see him all pretty often riding around. He'd have his guitar on his back and his travel bag, and and this is I mean the Deftones are they they were at the biggest point they were at mm-hmm. that point, and that's Stephen started scooting around on his on his. So what do you think? And this is this is where I was getting with that too. Then that's actually kind of funny that you said that. But so you you know him for example, and you know a lot of other of other really good really good artists. Or and is there anything? Do you feel like there's any kind of a anything similar, some sort of a through line with with these guys? Whether it's uh, just sort of how they see things, or whether it's a work ethic, or yeah. So, um, I was like, I don't want to go to high school, I want to go to art, do art. 
Did you do that, by the way? Not to change the subject, but did you actually go to an art school? Or? Well, I went to the Academy of Art for two semesters, and I had, um, I was, they, there was talk of me getting a scholarship to go to, to, to uh, Art Center in Pasadena, oh, yeah. where I wanted to go, um, because of my figure drawing classes and stuff, the portfolio I put together, but, uh, but I was like 19 then, and I was already been working for a couple of years, and I had a kid, so I had real, you know, something that I needed to take care of. That's where I met Daniel Freeman, ironically enough, in Art Center. And he bailed out of there, too. Well, anyway, so I never, I never have, ever got to actually pursue the, the, any of the Art Center stuff. But, um, but, but I was drawing, I mean, every day. I drew every day, all day. Even though I was a kid, there was no pregnancy or son or anything like that to worry about. I, I drew all the time. And... and because I knew this is, I've known what I wanted to do since I was a little teeny kid. And, and, uh, so there you go, that's it. And I'm sure that's the same with all these guys, with whatever they do. Yeah, I think every one of us had to sit there and, um, you know, you practice guitar, you practice drawing, you do whatever you're doing, or you're bike riding or whatever. And, and every day. Every day. And you do it. I mean, I, Daniel and I, Daniel Friedman and I, he read some book, and I think it was called The Secret or not, but. It's some fucking book that I read for a couple of years there where it's like to become a master at something, to be considered a master at something, you have to put in. Oh, the 10,000 hour hours. thing? Yeah, yeah. That's what I was like, okay, let's figure out how many hours I put in. And Dan and I are sitting there, and so I was like, okay, I've gone. I said, I'll, I'll, I won't count any drawing I did before before my girlfriend got pregnant. So I'll say, the time I've been six, or 16, um, I've drawn every day. At least six hours. Wow. And that's not really true because, like, in the last fifteen years, I mean, I, I, I get up and start working. It's about I'm working by eight thirty every morning, if not seven thirty, and I'm and I quit working around six at night every day. And then there's a lot of times I'll work until eight or nine or ten or eleven or whatever. So there's no mystery to this. You bust your ass. And you bust your ass for years. You know, if you don't get better at it, then there's something really wrong. Or you're lying. You're not really doing work. Right. But we did all these calculations, and it was something like, I put in like 75 or 80,000 hours or something like that. Jesus. Oh, that's why you get good at something. And I'm not even, there's every day I have moments where I'm like, oh, I wish I knew what I was doing right now. And Daniel, who is primarily a writer, he's directing more. He, I know for a fact, he writes every single fucking day too. He he gets up as a discipline and writes every day for I don't know how many hours. But. Writers write and artists draw or they paint or whatever you know. And I really do think that drawing is the underpinning. If you don't know how to draw, or you don't, or you haven't studied life drawing. I mean, that's really when I was after I did the, like those early books for after a couple of years, I quit for like a year or two. Just learn how to draw because I didn't want to draw like anybody else um, anymore, and that was all growing up. And so I, I uh, just went back to I just took figure drawing classes at school, the local uh, you know, city college. Right, right. And to take community or to take the the new figure drawing. I did every I was doing two classes a semester for. Know, three or four years, and then I would keep doing it. You know, I do at least one class a semester 
This is. I I mean I really love that you talked about this because it's one of those things where you know people they see someone like you or you wouldn't say that about yourself one of these guys that you mentioned they didn't just come out the shoot and fucking draw like that and it, or whatever it is or play the guitar like that or or whatever the case may be and it doesn't come from dicking around with that on weekends here and there for a year it's like you really have to work every aspect of it. I didn't wake up yesterday and just say like I'm going to build a building like the person who's building that is they know what they're doing because they went to school for it and studied it and they've done it and they've they've learned how you construct design and construct and realize you know one of the tallest buildings in the world and it's the same thing for us like you don't like you have to learn how anatomy works you have to learn how space works and how volume works it's just the instruments that you know, work and I know a lot of guys who, like a lot of the guys I grew up drawing with or, or doing whatever with, mainly art stuff though, um, they would reach a certain point, and they were all better than me at that. Sometimes they're all older than I was. But then they would hit a certain point where they, people really liked what they did, and all the girls or parents or whoever it was would be like, oh, you can draw so great, or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, With a little circle for the eye dot. <laughs> and that's what they that's what they achieved, and they felt good with that, and that they they stopped right there because it was to go to the next level of ability or, or they plateaued and they and they didn't push yeah, it's, through it's, it. It's it harder and harder to keep getting to keep getting better and pushing yourself and learning, and because eventually, like. You start out and you're competing with your siblings, and then you're competing with your classroom, and then you're competing with the whole school, and then you're competing with the other people that are the best in their school are now in one spot, and they're all competing. Mm-hmm. Eventually, like, I don't really think of myself as competing because I just do what I do, but but in a way, like, I'm competing with, you know, the very best people in the world that do this. Like, it's not a... Um, there's no charity in this bullshit. Like nobody's gonna buy my book because they feel bad for me that I'm not as right. good as somebody else. Like you have, or they're because they're my mom or something. Right. Like you, you people buy your book because it's good. Um, right. And so at a certain point, you're competing with you know the very top people that do this in the entire world. And if you aren't, um, if you aren't willing to put in the work or, or bring the bring your baby in wherever. Uh, right <laughs> analogy or whatever that thing we were searching for yeah <laughs> right um, somebody else will essentially Yeah, there's a 
there's a motto from the seals there's like a training motto of theirs that i think is really cool that reminds me of i used to actually have printed out once and it's it's uh was it do today what others won't do tomorrow what others can't so you can do tomorrow what others can't so that's that's sort of what you're doing you know you're getting up at 7 30 and you're working all fucking day you're not like dabbling around with it here and there on just on a peachy <laughs> right right Right. Right. Like, I just do it. And, uh, that's one of the things I like about Facebook because I see so many people that are, and, and it lets me know how fortunate I am because a lot of guys, I was like, you guys don't see Facebook. I'm just like, God damn, like, I'm glad you're not my partner because I would be out of a job. Like, you are, some of these people, and I don't know if it's because they're from, from far off foreign countries or because they're, Maybe they're doing books that I just don't see because they're, you know, they're not. I'm not privy to that market or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're maybe there's something about what they do that just doesn't um, translate into them getting more work. But yeah, some of these people are so good. Yeah. And I have no idea why they're not drawing every book that comes out. There's a lot of variables in that. I mean, there's so many variables that it makes me realize how fortunate I am that I've been able to. We've talked about this in, in former episodes, like um, with uh, Brian Larkin. He's an actor. He was in that London Has Fallen movie that won't draw a butler. And uh, he's been at it for like 14 years, you know, and he finally got, I mean, he's worked. He's worked and done things, but this is sort of his, his biggest thing. And uh, we were talking about how, I guess that translates into every art world, but particularly I know in film, it's not a meritocracy necessarily like in his case he worked hard and he's really talented and he got there and, and I love it when that happens but sometimes that's not always the case sometimes people you know it's just not always the case people succeed and you know and good, God bless them for succeeding but you might find uh, a guy on some stage in a community theater in Idaho is like a Brando level and but he's up there you know or he's not whatever reason maybe he's too shy to, to get out in the business world a little bit but Whatever, whatever, yeah. But so that happens. That does happen. So there's a lot as far as business success. That's a whole. But I mean, obviously, it helps to be as good as you can. I mean, you, you're, you one thing's for sure. You can't be. You can't be horrible. Well, <laughs> I take that back. Alive and well, but yeah, I mean, you gotta be. You gotta be committed. You gotta be good. You gotta sacrifice, and you have to. Put in the work, and, and then you have to be able to. I mean, the pitch, like, with comics, I don't, I don't talk to many people. You know, like, I, I've worked with people, and you see them once a year at a show, or you talk to them a couple times on the phone. Maybe you're shooting emails back and forth, and they're short, brief, like, emails, like, sounds good, <laughs> or, you know, like, will do. Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, but when, when I started doing a lot of the phone stuff where I had to, and it wasn't like work for hire, it was like going in and about writing and producing or directing and whatever different kind of stuff where you're like the, you're the point man that has to get this thing up and going. Well, I think Daniel had a couple of, you know, big things we did that, that we wrote and produced and directed from top to bottom or, or things, you know, like, like a little movie thing to write. And, um, and not, they're not only going to be good, you have to be able to be good and be able to sell it. Yeah. And that, 
Yeah. That's a perfect example of what I meant, though. Like, you know, that's it's a whole different. I mean, you. I mean, business and art. I mean, that's always been the weird. There's always been a weird headbutt thing with that. But um, but it's it's. I mean, it's necessary if you want to eat. I mean, you can, and if you want to be really good. I mean, it's just the way it is. Like I was in bands a lot growing up as a kid, I always did art and stuff. And like, if you're drawing a picture, like you can show the picture to someone, and they're like, "Oh, that's really good." And that's about as much time as you need to convey whether or not they should hire you. It's like, "Oh, those are that's, that, those are really good. I'll hire you." Right. Or if you're in a band, like, and you're playing a venue, it only takes fifteen or twenty or thirty seconds for the audience to decide. Oh, this is something I'm going to stick around and watch, or I'm going to go to the bar now and right, right. And get out in the parking lot to neck or something. And Did you say neck, by the way? The neck. Okay. <laughs> I think I heard that on Happy Days last time. <laughs> anyway, good. <laughs> he draws happy pictures. Yes, but um, camels are hell of a But with, with the pitch stuff for writing and then trying to sell that stuff, like a lot of it is not about because you can't just hand someone a script or a, or a or a manuscript and be like, what do you think? Like they gotta go read it and they go, it's hard and it's boring and it takes time and energy and you gotta be doing something else. And so then you have to look at this like dancing monkey kind of dog and pony show bullshit. And they judge you based on that. Like they wanna judge you like, if you can get them laughing and get them to say yes in the room, then you're golden. And that just was the opposite of what I'd done my entire life. Like, I would be able to just say, like, look, I drew this picture. It's really good. Like, okay, hire me. So you're, you're, you're talking specific. You're talking, now you're, you're talking about pitching, stuff. pitching a, okay. And eventually, like, I did, did that movie um, for Liza called Catacombs, which was a disaster, but a great learning experience, which I've had enough fucking learning experiences in my life. But, um... It was a great one, and after that, I did eight, six, seven, eight months of just like every month we do like a solid week where this be we do a pitch before lunch and a pitch after lunch, a pitch before lunch and a pitch after lunch, a pitch in the morning and a pitch in the afternoon and then a pitch in the evening or whatever, and and you you learn how to be. Which I don't know if this, this interview is probably not reflecting any of this, but you learn how to be like sharp and witty and to the point and charming and all of that bullshit you need to be, or, or you learn whatever you're, you learn you learn your persona. Right. You figure out what your persona is, and if it's the I'm the guy that makes you laugh and chuckle, and you want to work with me because I'm a cool guy, or maybe I'm the asshole that's artistic and you want right. to work with me because I'm aloof and better than you are, or something. Whatever that thing is that you, at a certain point you realize, okay, this is my in-the-room persona and this is how I sell stuff. And the hard, the, the shitty part about that too is, you know, people who, most artists in general, I'm just making a, this is generalization, but I'm going to say a majority of, when you're talking about writers or guys who draw or what, I mean, this is, these are solitary art forms. They're not necessarily like... Right, and but I mean, they're not always, you know, like, uh, 
how do you say it? I mean, it's a completely, this, this social aspect, this sort of, I don't want to say bullshitting, but the sort of salesmanship, and that's not bullshit. I mean, that's just a fact. It's not something that you're, a lot of artists are necessarily adept at or used to. So it's really tough when you have to be great at both. But it kind of goes back to the other thing where you have to get good at it. Like you, you have to work at it and practice at it. Like I remember I was pitching something at MTV a long time back and it's MTV films over on the Paramount lot. And uh, I pitched a development exec. I was a VP of development. I can't remember. There's like a million VPs of development. But, um, and I got him to love it. But I, but, and then I went and pitched his higher up, and he loved it. So they brought in um, the guy who was the, the head of the studio at the time. And uh, who had to say yes to stuff, and or he was the second in command, I guess. And I, I won't use his name, but I know we call. Later, I heard people calling him a comedian because he, he doesn't he doesn't laugh, he doesn't express any emotion or any. Oh, but that was fun. He's, he's just like a poker face. Like a busted Lincoln. <laughs> That's horrible. Right. And. And he just ripped me destroyed. Not even didn't even do anything. Just got just because I didn't get any reactions out of him. He, I just lost. You crumbled. Yeah. You imploded. Exactly. I just lost my way and started double doubling back and like whatever. And by the end of it, it was just like I'm really sorry. <laughs> 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 you had to come here on the evening. Ah. Uh. Do you, are you, you get good at it and, and now you can go in, I can go in a room and like you just flip a switch and suddenly you're like I'm happy right 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 and, and, uh, do you plan on doing more of that by the way that's what I was gonna are you I mean I, we've talked and stuff. yeah I mean we've talked at length and private you know about all, a lot of these experiences that uh, that you've had with this and you and Daniel have had with uh, with your scripts and some of these things and w- had some success and Lots of huge ups and downs, to say the least. But um, so, is this something that you wanna that you plan on recouping and, con- and continuing with, or do you think you want to just I, put I that aside? That, right? I mean, I, I, there are times when I think yes, and, there, and I'm like, right, let's 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 go, and I'm, I'm excited and, and ready to, to embark on that little journey again. And then there are other times where it's like, there's not a Nothing in the world that can convince me I should pursue film in any way, shape, or form. And, and like I did kind of go into some other and I did other things here and there, and and, um, and it's, it's I love doing kind of It was it was super fun to work with the actors and, and the crew and and. Um, and the producers, I, had, I, 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 had a, I think I had a good relationship with those guys. Um, but at the end of the day, there are so many people involved that it, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a runaway train in a way, isn't it? Yeah, and one person dumps the tracks and or doesn't do their part or or, or drops the ball or. or or you miss something and you mess up or something, whatever, whatever it might be, you might not even notice, like almost like a ripple effect, you might not even notice that it happened at the moment. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, two months later or three months later or whatever, you're something like, oh my God, you're in so much trouble because... Right. Like if, you, if, you, if you're aiming towards the moon with the rocket and you nudge it a millimeter right here, you're going to be... Yeah. You're, <laughs> right, right. Comics, you know, I can sit down and and um, do everything by myself, and it doesn't cost any money. And, and it's you know, it, I can do uh, it's unlimited budget, and it's just whatever my imagination can get on the page. Right. And, uh, and that's that's really really awesome. But yeah. At the same time, there's the doing doing the film stuff as you know, there's other different allures to that. Like it's just, a, it's. I mean, I mean, and also a big one is just I've done it three or four times now. I've directed one one feature and uh, studio, and and I mean, I don't think I've got it right yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think you look at that one, and I think David and I, um, David Elliott, is the most my partner. Um. I think you got a lot of stuff right. You did a lot of really neat things. And I think you did a lot of really different things that you didn't, you hadn't seen um, before. And I think it was also, if you could watch the film and not watch the bad, low quality uh, video output from the final um, So I think it's like an MP3 or something that's on the thing to do. It's like a really low budget. Oh, wow. Is there is there any way that anybody can do it? Oh fuck! But um, you can. Uh, but there's a lot of really neat and beautiful stuff about it. But as a film, it just doesn't it doesn't add up to be a good a good movie. Um, and the a real shitter a shitter about that is like, you know, obviously almost everybody has to fall on their ass when they're trying to figure that shit out and you learn as you go but when you make a feature and you're talking about oh there's a ghetto bird look for that to pass (laughs) so when you make a feature and there's so much money on the line and, and so many irons in the fire it's often hard Unless you're doing it completely on your own, when you're talking about a studio feature, particularly to to get another crack at it. We we got screwed in a lot of ways that weren't our. If, if you've never seen the movie, I don't know if I recommend seeing it. But if you can get your hands on the DVD, I think I'm pretty positive that puts it. Um, or you can probably get it for a quarter on the website. But the the, the, the Wasn't he the guy that did Saw? Yeah. I remember that. And uh, he died really suddenly, and that just killed us. That I mean, that broke that just words there. But he, uh, his death basically just stopped us 100 percent as as a production. Um, 
But then, uh, also, we were so been exploring million and a half dollars, I think. Um, and so we cost so little that they could just suck it up and just say, well, just dump it to DVD and sell some foreign rights. And oh, that's what happened. Oh, my God. Then they would have had to put us out because they couldn't, they couldn't absorb that loss. Right. Um, but uh, being a one and a half million dollar film, and, and honestly, Lionsgate didn't want to put out Saw. They, uh, they did everything in their power to bury that movie. Wow. Because they just didn't think it was going to be a success. And, and, and so when Craig died, Craig was the mastermind behind Saw, and they were terrified because Saw knew Saw. I think Saw 2 was out when he passed away. And they made so much money. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of millions of dollars. And they knew that Greg was the guy behind those movies. And so when he passed away, they were terrified that they'd lost their Saw cash cow. And so they, they immediately dove into doing um, Saw 3. And, and we just literally forgot about it for seven or eight months. Uh, until someone called us and they're like, hey, I'm on, I'm on the floor at you know, some hotel room in Con for the festival and I see they're selling the video rights to your movie. I found it behind the file cabinet. Yeah, they're selling video rights to like Lithuania or something. And like, oh, we're screwed. But, um, so there's a lot that's just beyond our control of that. And it'd be nice to do something where you can control it a little bit. Yeah, where you don't have to, um, I remember one of the producers who didn't read the script until he was on the plane over and said, Romania, we shot it at him. He still did for a week over there to pick on us. And um, when he got there, he was like, you know, your, your, your hero is a bit of a downer. Oh, no. So can't he have like a dog that flies or something? So we, if we hadn't filmed those scenes, we filmed the scene on either side of those scenes. Um, so, you know? yeah, and that wasn't an, that wasn't enough to... And so he was like, yeah, well, I know we're supposed to go to Paris, but there's a chance we're going to be able to go to Paris for, for a week to shoot, you know, exteriors and everything after this and, and take the actresses and shoot some stuff in the, on the streets so we can actually be in Paris because otherwise we weren't going to go to Paris. So if you want to go to Paris, you're going you're gonna to cut those scenes. And, and it's like... Right, we'll figure it out, you know? Wow. And in hindsight, like, you can... I mean, there's a lot of things that the film needs... Should have... Uh, the film's here or there, but in hindsight, like, I can see how those arbitrary decisions were absolutely um, detrimental to, the, like, the film. Yeah. At a certain point, there were enough of those arbitrary decisions made that the film could not survive yeah. the, the process. Yeah. I remember at a certain point, like, we had, a, we had a really great ending, I thought, and, and I still do think. But um, Lionsgate felt like our ending, they wanted a, an ending, <coughs> they wanted a, a different ending so that we could shoot a different ending for like DVDs or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they wanted, uh, 
in, in our in our ending, the, the bad guy in the story turns out to be like not real to hopes or to prank. And they wanted us to shoot anywhere that guy was real. The bad guy was real, and he comes and he kills the person. And they gave us literally like the same ultimatum about Paris. Like, do you want to go to Paris to shoot this? And and so we they gave us like a day to write it, and we sent over the pages, and they were like, no, these are this is no good. Like, it needs to be this. And they sent back like, this is the page. These are the pages. And then we didn't have an actor. So they, they cast it from L.A. And they cast this Romanian, like, I guess he's like the Romanian uh, <laughs> uh, equivalent of, like, Spencer Tracy or something. Okay. He's, like, really accomplished, right. really great actor. But, um, but he's, he was in his mid-70s. And, and when he arrives on set, like, the, the bad guy in the movie has been... He's like six and a half feet tall. So the reason the is literally he's six six or six seven or something like that. He's a fucking dude. Really friendly guy. He's huge. Yeah. And this fucking actor shows up and he's like five five. No five four. And he's pot bellied. And he's this guy who I find out is mainly is he's considered a great actor, but he's really a he's a comedic actor. Oh. <laughs> And, and they gave us one day to shoot it. And we had to kill seven people in one day. And we had no prosthetics. We had no practical uh, effects. And, and we got a guy who looks like the little fucking goblin. Oh, God. You took so many shots to the balls in this in this whole thing. We sustained enough damage over the course of those four weeks that um that we just couldn't come inside and survive. Like there's no way that we can overcome that. And then also because the soft films have become so successful, they were and they're incredibly violent. Like, mm-hmm. Watch the third film. Yeah, I don't even think that kind of thing is scary. That's a whole different subject. It's not thing, it's just a whole different it's, I wouldn't even call it horror really. It's a it's not Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I mean it's if you're into it, you know that's fine, but I mean it's just it doesn't really yeah. anyway, it's another subject. And there's like a there's like some weird UFO in this guy. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that's crazy. It it went up in Tokyo and came down here. Anyway, the soft films become so successful, and they were films that were very, 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 very on screen, violent, gore. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror, horror something like that. Yeah. Torture, torture porn. That's it. We really set out to make, and he knew it, and we were all on the same page to make something that was the opposite of that. Like, we didn't want to make something that was incredibly on-screen violence. Mm-hmm. Like, we wanted to do something that was much more in, like, the 70s vein. You know, mm-hmm. 
Well, they were like they were slasher movies back then, though. I mean, it was a different. So when we were finished with a, uh, you know, an assembly cut of the film, an assembly cut is when you stick all the pieces together to make sure you have everything, and it's not really good to watch. Um, the the people at Lionsgate were just like, well, where's all the, where's all the violence and gore and blood and awful evil mm-hmm. things happening? And we were, all of us were like, well, that's just not what this movie is about. And they're like, well, that's what this movie needs to be about. And I was, and I'm like, well, dude, we shot all it. I mean, we're we're done shooting. <laughs> yeah. Unless you guys want to put up some more uh, cash to, to, to do that. Mm-hmm. And they were saying no. You know, and so we had to sit there and try and figure out how to cut it together in a way that would make them happy. Ah, yeah, yeah. Try and get it more of that like real cutty, cutty, quick like MTV. Right, right. And, and all those like single cell, I mean, single frame edits and stuff. And, uh, Which I'm also not a fan of, by the way. Yeah, so they did all this incredibly. Um, we were pandering to the to the, the studio and, and the producers, I think. Yeah. In a way that, that, because by then we knew we were fucked. Yeah. And so we were just doing anything we could to try and get the film, uh, get them to at least give the film a second look. And they, and they never did. But. Um, but, but I think so doing another one would be fun to um, much more independent yeah it is something that we're, well also at this point I don't really I, I think I'm not I wouldn't be necessarily as obliging mm-hmm. because I under, because I understand at this point like well you can't dismantle the entire story based on Arbitrary producer notes. Yeah. Uh, because because you can't survive. Like, everything's there for a particular reason, and yeah. if you take it apart and don't replace it with something equally meaningful to the story, then you're 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 in a lot. I learned some very similar hard lessons, and I've come to the same conclusion when I had my first little go around with my first feature that came close to happening but then was pulled but we were doing similar not to that extent because it hadn't been made yet or but similar you know just constant revisions to constant changes all these requests to make things more marketable and by the time we got to the point where we were going to do it i i you know it was going to be my first i was going to my first film i was directing and i was yeah so i was you know really wanting to do it but inside i was really just like oh my my soul was really crushed because i knew we were doing something that was not what i set out to do because we i was making these you know concessions for all these requests and you know if it's not your money basically they have to put the money down and agree on what you're going to do and that's it Cut it loose, boom. That's what it's going to be, and and I know what you mean. It's like you can't be. I mean, it's not. You're just being firm and, and holding on to your own integrity. It's not like you're being difficult or being a pain in the ass. You're just doing. You have to because if you don't, someone else will take that rein and they'll do whatever they want with it. And also, you're giving in film. I feel like, or maybe not just in film, but in any of these high dollar endeavors. Um. But in, in film, is my experience. Everyone is looking for an excuse to say no. 
everyone, it's so much easier to say no than it is to say yes. Mm -hmm. So, as a as a person trying to get them to say yes, you you end up wanting to, to be accommodating and, and, and you know to. Especially your first time around when you're like, whoa, this is really happening. And you're like, oh, okay, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. Yeah. Exactly. And you just think, like, we'll fix it in editing. We'll fix it in editing. Right. Right. And, uh, I mean, Daniel and I did Undying Log. We did that as a, as a script. And for whatever reason, it didn't sell. And then we we did it as a comic book, and it, and it did. We, we, and the comic, I really love the comic, and, and we were in this great position where the comic really well received critically. And, and, and it did pretty well financially, and then the Warner Brothers came on board, and, and we wrote the script for Warner Brothers. And so we were in this great position where we could be really accommodating because uh, the book was great, or people thought the book was great, and and we were really happy with the book. And so if the movie was great, then we could take all the credit and all for that. And if the movie sucked, then we could blame it on Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, a good position. But <laughs> 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 like everybody wanted... We told him at the beginning of the story, like, we didn't do a first act with Undying Love because we just wanted to get straight to the, the good stuff, like the, the you know, the gunfights and the monsters and mm -hmm. the, the love affair and all this other, you know, hot and heavy bullshit. <laughs> and, and that's what we really loved that about it, that it, that was what, that we didn't have the first act where, you know, we meet everybody and mm -hmm. the and the And... So that's great. It's one of the reasons we really like it, but we need to have that if we're going to make a film. A film needs to have that. And I would say, well, why? <laughs> the script doesn't need to have it, so why does the fucking film need to have it? Right. But everybody doesn't want to know why these people love each other. And I'm like, well, when you see Brad Pitt and, and Angelina Jolie on screen, and they look at each other from across the room, and they have that pause, and you pop into it. You know, an ultra close where you see the twinkle in their eye, and Brad Pitt gives that kind of half smile that he does. Um, you know that they're in love. Like you just, you know it. You're, there's no need to then flash back to show how they met each other. Right, them frolicking on a beach or whatever. Yeah, and so, but they were convinced we needed a a, a love story, or we needed to have this first act. And so we Daniel and I have written for six months trying to add in an explanation for why these two were in love and we'd write it for Zach and they'd cut it down to a cold open and they'd do it flashbacks and we did every way you can imagine and then we'd bring in a director we'd sort of bring in directors and we've had you know 13 different people producers giving notes and um, and I admitted I admit fully like this script got and I would tell people, like, we're, we're not precious. Like, Daniel and I are not being precious about this, the writing because we just want to make it good. Right. But the producers are really fucking precious. And, like, we've had scenes... I don't want to mention any names, but there were certain scenes in the script that were... that a, a producer would say, like, oh, write this line, and they would email us a line. And we'd have to stick that exact goddamn line in there. And then, you know, in a subsequent draft that scene would be cut out of the movie or cut out of the script. And then the producer would call us back a couple days later and say, you know, I think we could stick that line here. Oh, we figure out a way to, wait to, to work that line into a scene that it had no... No relevance to anything. There was no bearing. The, that line was a complete... It was like a total outlier that came from nowhere and they would just say this kind of non-sequitur and then they'd and you'd just go back to whatever your regular scene is and you're like... 
And this is months, by the way. And and then eventually we bring in four pretty good directors over the course of the time that. Yeah, I heard some of those names. Yeah, yeah. And we liked all of them. Um, and they were all a lot of fun to to work with and whatever. And they all really were great to Daniel and I, but but every one of them would come in and they'd say, the thing I want to do is we want to get it back to what the comic was. <laughs> and the producers and everybody fucking involved would go, exactly. Oh, my God. And I'm like, dude, I wrote the fucking comic book. A year and a half ago. <laughs> that you guys are now peddling. And I, I'm privy to every conversation that's gone on. Like, the last thing you wanted to do was get back to what the comic was. Um, and it's just a really weird business. I, don't, I just don't yeah. understand the, the, the... And Daniel and I have written four or five things since then, and every every experience has kind of been very similar, where it turns into a group of people, producers, that don't get things made, that are in very big companies at very big positions, and, and they make a lot of money, they don't make a lot of movies, that just sit there and they go round in circles for four or five months or six months. Or even years. A year, and, and, then, and then eventually you just lose. And then they, then they just move on. and yeah. They get, they get a different position. <clears throat> a new person that comes on doesn't want to... If a new producer comes on because someone quit or got fired, there's no way in hell that new person's going to eat them. Well, and as time goes on, people's availability, directors, actors, it all is always in flux. So whatever plan that they had before, is, it can't be the same in a few months or whatever, or especially six months, 12 months. And so you just keep running into this, like, groundhog day of, like, uh, you know, just repeating the same uh, sequence of events over and over and over and over and over, ad nauseum forever. And, and so... I think the whole point is I just don't want to. I don't want to do any of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm so fucking over that. Yeah. I don't care about going into some bigwig's office and like impressing him enough that he gives me a, a, a job rewriting some awful script that's never going to get made and just going to make my life hell for a few months. I'd rather just draw the book or figure out how yeah. to raise the money or, or or. I mean, I have so many friends that are really, really successful screenwriters. And these are guys who've made enormous amounts of money and have made their own homes, they own vacation homes, they have yeah. actresses for girlfriends long after they should have no longer been allowed to have young actresses for <laughs> girlfriends. And, and, um, and they're living these really great lives, but professionally, they've never had a movie produced. Wow, and that's actually pretty common, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Most yeah. Don't get any movies produced because it's, they they have thousands of movies written and then they make ten. Yeah. Or hundreds of movies written, and they'll have these files on the desktop of their computers that will say like scripts, and it'll be filled with thirty or twenty or thirty or forty different screenplays they've written and been paid for and made very good amounts of money with, but they have no. My friends. Or, we always call it in in, in, uh, in my comic thing. You guys out hang out with. We always call it inches on your on your bookshelf, where you have like on my bookshelf, I have about a foot of or maybe two feet of 
books I've done, like that mm-hmm. are stacked next to each other. That's like those are my inches of work. And if you're a film writer or a screenwriter, for the most part, you don't have anything. Like you can't you can't show any of it to anybody because it's owned by somebody else. You can't you can't decide you're going to make it on your own because you never owned it in the first place. Right. You can't publish it in a different medium because you don't. I mean, you don't own any of it, so you can never actually. It's just. It's like a vacuum. Yeah. Like you just write things and put them in this little file and they pay you for them, but you never get to actually be recognized for anything. No matter how good or bad it is, you never have any... Uh, yeah. And every, I, haven't, I mean, every drawing I've done since I was about 17 years old, maybe not every drawing, but 95% of the drawings I've done since I was about 17 years old I, are for publication. Like, I don't... Right, you see you are result. <laughs> Right. A black hole effect. The only black hole I have is the shit I've written for Hollywood, or the shit I've made for Hollywood that eventually just doesn't go anywhere. And it's, it's a really weird. It's one of the reasons I just absolutely am, am baffled by Hollywood because. I, I see what comes out, and I'm not saying that I do anything better, but there's, a, there's an enormous amount of work and, and, and thought and effort and, and I, I guess probably love and like real determination put into creating incredibly half-assed <laughs> <serious. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's I don't, I mean, my wife is a live producer for very, very successful TV shows. And, um, and a lot of, I, I know a lot of people she works with, and I know some of the, or I've got to meet, you know, some of the people that are the stars of those shows or whatever, and, and, um, and there's a reason they're successful, like, people really are busting their asses and, and, and putting a lot of work in, and the, and the stars are generally some of the most, um, charming people you'll ever meet, but, uh, at the end of the day, the product you're producing is just, like, a reality show, kind of, like, I mean, right. background noise for when you're cooking in the kitchen or something, and, and I'm so baffled by all the, the huge amount of work that goes into producing such middle-of-the-road stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope, dude, I really, really hope that, I mean, maybe over time, I don't know, but I hope you, you'll have an opportunity to uh, to do something that you want, whether you raise the money, whatever the case may be, you know, I hope you do. Um I think we've gone about twice the length of any of the other podcasts here, and honestly, it's uh, it's been fucking awesome. It's been a great talk. Like, no, no, you know what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this one is. No shit. Are you serious? Really? Holy shit. But I'm glad you said that instead of just the hippest because I promise you guys I do not have a bow tie on or nor skinny jeans. And I... And uh, well, but he, you didn't come here on a unicycle though. So there's that. Ha, 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 ha.
Dude, no, but this has been a great talk, even if we didn't have these mics, which stayed on this time, thankfully. So thanks for coming, dude. And uh, do you, oh, you do them often? No, no, I've only done. You've done a few. I've done a few, but then in pick meetings too, everybody always be like, "This has been so much fun, but it's like three times longer than the thing with the That's a good sign. And always like, "Yeah, that's a really good sign that means you're gonna hire me." Like, what? <laughs> 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 Let's end on that note. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll call you. I gotta run. Yeah. No, this has been a blast. I can't wait to um, to listen back to it while I'm working and, and, and listen to your own voice many, many times. It's a, I've done it a few times now. It's, it's an interesting. Yeah. Situation. Thanks, dude. I sound higher in line than <laughs> Okay. Thanks, man. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. That's a handshake sound. Yes, that was a clasp, much like uh, the Predator Arnold and Carl Weathers. <laughs> <laughs> okay thanks man all right bye so that was tom coker hope you guys enjoyed it um i did we had a good time as i think you can tell i'm gonna go ahead and put up links to a lot of the stuff that we talked about in this talk on the blog at triumphanddisasterblog.com and if you actually if you go to my personal website you can actually see a drawing that he did of me uh, as sort of a thumbnail at cammcarg.com, which is, there's a dash in there. So it's C-A-M-M-C-H-A-R-G.com if you want to take a look at that. But I'll post some examples of uh, some of his work on the blog, on the Triumph and Disaster blog, and uh, some links some stuff about catacombs if I can find it and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed. If you did, it would be great if you guys could just take a quick second to just rate and review it on iTunes. And I do that and I ask for that, not for likes. It's not about getting likes so much as what it is, is iTunes will help promote the show if we get more of those. So it'd be really helpful and I'd really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, share it, share it and stick around for next week. Talk to you then. Thanks. Bye.